Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. You're lucky this week. It's not a solo episode. You don't have to just hear my boring voice. We got a great guest today and we are going to get right to it because we're both kind of on a little bit of a time crunch, to be honest with you. And um, we're just I've just been really excited about it. Um, Kate and her organization reached out to me uh, just a little while ago, just a few weeks ago. And I was so glad they did because um, it's been a little while since we had since we focused on a nonprofit practitioner. We've had a lot of leaders and leadership coaches and different people on the show. I've done some solo episodes to talk about some leadership theory and some of the things that I'm finding in my coaching. But uh, I really like to have the people who are out in the trenches in the social sector doing the leading. I like to have them on the show because they're the best examples of some of the leadership challenges that we are all facing and some of the great ideas and innovations on how they're excelling as leaders. And Kate is excelling as a leader. Let me tell you, she is Kate Curran. She's the founder and CEO of an organization called School the World. It is an international education nonprofit, and they're serving over 15,000 children in rural Central America. And uh, Kate started this organization after losing three family members in just two years left a sterling career, legal career at General Electric and uh, took a a year-long sabbatical to travel the world. And during this time, something transformational happened for her. I'm going to not tell that story. I'm going to let her tell that story. School of the World is now in its 13th year and they have built 127 schools. We could stop right there. That is an impressive 127 schools this organization has built. 64 playgrounds. They've stocked 725 libraries. They've trained 7,400 teachers and they've empowered over 8,000 parents to be their child's first educators. If you've followed us much, you know that we're big, 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 big proponents of the early education and parents as their child's first teacher. And um, Kate is the author of the School of the World Education Strategy. It's a strategy that has earned praise from USAID, ministers of education, and leading education experts. Um, I've got more here on Kate than we have time for, but I will say that just a couple of years ago, she was honored as one of Forbes 50 over 50, women leading the way in impact. And so that tells you this is the real deal we're talking to here. So Kate, thank you, first of all, for reaching out. Thank you for what you're doing in the world. And thank you for taking time to come on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is impressive stuff, and you and I have only had a little bit of time before today to kind of touch base and talk a little bit about the organization. So I'm probably going to be learning and inquiring along with the rest of our listeners today in real time. But just start with um, start with yourself. Yeah, I'm going to let you just kind of take over for a while. Tell this story of how this came to be, how School of the World came to be, and what this experience was for you during your sabbatical and world travel and um and then tell us how how this all came about and what you're trying to do sure um like you mentioned i was a lawyer at general electric i had a great job very challenging 
um, highly compensated when I suddenly lost my brother and then both my parents passed away the following year. And my parents were like classic greatest generation, meaning they gave and gave and gave. They were so involved in their communities and political life. And it was all about giving back for them. And that was so evident at the end of their lives and the response of a very big community um, when they passed away. That really got me thinking, you know, what have I done? How have I contributed? Um, my mother's last words were actually, I've had a great life. And I thought, oh my God, she's this is a woman who has lived in physical pain her whole life. She lost three children. She raised five others who uh, hand, waiting hand and foot on all of us. And here she is saying, I've had a great life. And I thought, I want to be able to say that. And um, can I say that what I'm doing right now is going to get me there? And the answer was no, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, and that was it right then. That was a decision for me that I was going to leave behind what I was doing and figure it out. And that's what I did. I just left without a plan. And I said, I'm at a certain point, I said, I'm, I can't, I need to begin the year differently. I cannot have another year like the last few. I'm leaving. I'm going to Argentina, which was just a country I'd always wanted to go to. It was cheap. I could go there. I could live, um, travel safely by myself, which I'd never done before. And so I went, I thought I was traveling for a month and it turned into more than a year of traveling on and off around the world. Um, and what I saw during that journey was, um, of course, children working um, in the Andes in the hot sun. I saw children begging in the streets um, in Buenos Aires in small towns. I spent time in Africa where I visited schools where you know, 12 kids would be sharing two pencils. You see children walking barefoot for long distance just to get to school. Um, and I'd go home for a visit and I would find in my mailbox a pen with my name on it as the marketing gimmick um, and think, oh my God, this is the kind of thing like we throw away. Um, it was it was just hard to even comprehend. But at the time I thought I was giving myself a year. I'm not going to worry about anything for a year, I said at a certain point. And so I traveled and right before the end of that year, I woke up one morning and I said, I think I can do this. And the this was not very well defined. It was um, definitely about serving the world's most marginalized, most impoverished children. And But I quickly ended up in a place of doing it through education, which definitely has the best return on investment. And I started. <laughs> and it was, um, I always say, I was high on life. You know, I believed absolutely anything was possible after a year like that. You're so grateful also. So you're seeing all these problems. You're seeing things that should not exist the way they are, problems that should have solutions. And you're also realizing how much you've been given in life. Um, and so you're so grateful and so appreciative. And there's really no better place to be than feeling that way. Um, so that's what really was the impetus for me to just get started and do it. Wow. Incredible story. A couple things strike me. One, I just love the description of your mother 
And I think it's just, I think mm-hmm. you honor her. I think you honor her well with your description. And, and, uh, you know, you mentioned that particular generation and this is just what you described as a classic, uh, example of it where lots of hardships, but cut the complaining, right. you know, just g- enjoy your, you know, give the best you can be grateful for what you have, um, and add value. And so what a, what a great lesson, um, and, and boy, talk about a parent being a teacher. So that struck me. The other thing that struck me is when you said, um, you said, I'm, I'm ready to do this, even though this wasn't defined yet. Mm. And that's pretty powerful because so often we paralyze ourselves to action because we're waiting for everything to fall into perfect place where every step of the roadmap is laid in front of us and it can provide guarantees and certainties. And, and we just don't know that. And so it takes a tremendous amount of courage to say, I've got to do something meaningful. I can do this. Somebody needs to do it. I'm experiencing it firsthand. So tell me about the first step, because this is a, what I'm interested in here and what, what intrigued me about you and you coming on this show to begin with was the entrepreneurial aspect of this. Mm -hmm. You were lit. This is a startup and we talk about how nonprofits are businesses and (laughs) you, you, as a founder, you know, this as well as anybody. And so this is a truly entrepreneurial spirit at play. What was your, how did you get started? You didn't know what this exactly was. Um, and you, you know, you spent, had spent your career at GE there, you know, as a GE lawyer, you weren't learning about how to start a nonprofit. How did you, how did you get started? Who, who helped you? What, what was the impetus or what was the, the catalyst that got you going? Who helped me? Gosh, a lot of things. So I, the first thing I did actually, I was like, I lived in a beautiful townhouse overlooking the Harbor in Connecticut and I packed it up and moved out and moved into the home that my parent, we still had of my parents. Um, thinking it would be a year and it wasn't a year. It was three years there sharing it with a sister who had also left her job. Um, and then as a lawyer, I had, of course, somewhere, I knew somewhere to begin. Like I knew the legal, I didn't know exactly, but I knew how to find out what the law was and just make it happen. And I was very entrepreneurial. So I didn't sit there and write bylaws. I borrowed them. (laughs) You know, I just borrowed them from someone else. And I just got started and um, GE had a joint venture in Central America. And I knew that CEO, I wrote to him and said, this is what I want to do. And he said, this is great. We'll help you get started. We'll fund your first few projects. Oh, that's so that amazing. made it a very easy decision yeah. to start in Central America. And then it was actually a friend of someone I met traveling in Patagonia who introduced me to a tour guide in Guatemala who brought me to meet the mayor of Chichi Casanengo and then talk about their needs. And he said, we need schools. And I said, great. How about you pay for half and we pay for half. And he said, great. And I said, okay, let's go right now. Like come show me it was getting dark and I had to leave the next day. And, you know, it was amazing. We went up to the top of this mountain. These mothers came running to us they, with gifts because we were there even considering helping their children and the kids were learning in like a dark shock. And um, it just became very easy from there that it would be education and that that actually would be a part of our model that would stay, which is mayors paying for 50% of any infrastructure improvement, um, which is how we begin in the community. When I first started, 
the need for infrastructure um, 13, 14 years ago was overwhelmingly obvious. Um, that started to change over time um, from not having any school building, but having a teacher and a legal code to they have three classrooms, but they need six classrooms and half the kids are learning in that shack-like environment. Um, but what you saw very clearly was how the community valued infrastructure so much. And it became really a, a great entry point to build trust with parents and community, um, which is really the most important thing you can do. Oh, very powerful that as an entrepreneur, you didn't start with bylaws. That's not, that's not where an entrepreneur is probably going to spend their bandwidth. You're thinking vision and strategy and who can I partner yeah. with and who do I need to know right. and where are the relationships? And that, that's, um, that's a really good example of that. Uh, let me get to, boy, I've got a lot of questions and I know we've got a, a little bit of limited time here, but let me, let me get to one thing. Um, just jump straight to something. I mentioned the number of schools you've built and playgrounds and libraries and such. What is, what would you say are the top one or two metrics of success? You've got a mission, you've got a purpose for why you formed this thing to begin with. What at the end of the day tells you this is working? That's a great question. That was, that's, this is a very challenging environment to determine that kind of thing. Because um, when I first started out, most of the data was not reliable. It was pretty, I would have to say fraudulent. Government data was not real. <laughs> You're kidding you know, you me. See 100, <laughs> no, I mean like totally not real. Um, and I, the lawyer in me and the GE in me said garbage in, garbage out. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I can't work with fake data. And so we would look for other signs, like, um, is the teacher there? Is the teacher there on time? Is the school clean? Are the classrooms decorated? Are the books being used? Mm, so you started with quality the, metrics. Yes. And, but also some quantitative things that I thought were directional. What percentage of parents are attending the parent training? Mm, we do five years of parent training where parents, at least in the first three years, have to come every other week. Um, and then once a month after that, and what percentage of parents are coming? Like that was to me a very important indicator. Um, the other thing you learn along the way is just that it's very, very complicated measuring learning. Um, I kind of joke, you know, Shakespeare said something like kill all the lawyers. Like I think today he would have said kill all the economists because the economists don't speak in, Spain, in plain English. It's economists that are doing the studies around education in this type of space. And it's, um, I always, I kind of joke, one plus one does not equal two in that context. So it's been very challenging, but in um, recent years, we've been able to find and attract great talent that is helping us with measuring our success. So now we're actually testing kids or tutoring kids and we're testing them every two weeks. And it's how much are they learning? How are they progressing along the, uh, the path of literacy? Literally, um, we of course are also tracking data around um, completion rates. We went back and um, a few years ago, the Inter-American Development Bank undertook a project to, to produce clean data in Guatemala. We finally had great data. So we went back to some of our earliest schools and we retroactively uh, looked at things like retention rates and completion rates. And what we saw were kids were um, first grade passing rates were increasing, which is a very big indicator of success. And then um, 
at a school that was just a huge problem school, the dropout rate went from something like 60% down to 25% over five years. And at least orally reported after that by the school director to be down to 3%. Um, and completion rates up significantly as well. That's the kind of data we're starting to track now routinely, but it's going to take some time. And of course, the um, pandemic upended everything, uh, particularly in this context where schools were closed mm-hmm. for two years and practically three years in Guatemala in particular. And so right now we're tracking literally literacy um, for about, I think it's around 5,000 kids where we're tracking their literacy um, gains and we're testing every two weeks. So how did you get the competencies around education, early education? I mean, all the things that you've just mentioned, all the drivers and the things that you're collecting, parental engagement and first grade reading markers and, you know, literacy, you know, it takes a competency just to know what it is that you need to measure. Then having the understanding of how to put together a measurement system and certainly the understanding and the expertise in how to actually drive the metrics. Now, now, how do you actually do the work? Where did you, how did you acquire this expertise coming into this from law, starting this social Mm -hmm. impact organization? How did you acquire the expertise you needed in the field? Well, the first thing I did was to read thousands and thousands of pages of studies, which I loved. And actually was my probably one of my favorite periods during this 14 year journey now was reading the studies on education and um, extrapolating what I believe to be the key drivers from those studies. And believe it or not, it seems so obvious. Um, But at the time people were like, how did you come up with this? How did you, how did you come up with so many best practices in one strategy? And yet it seems so obvious to me, you know, kids need a place. Parents need to be involved. You know, communities need to be engaged. Kids, you might fantasize that kids can learn under a tree, but not when it's raining for six months out of the year or when there's like dust in their eyes. You know, you just can't do that. Kids need books to learn. They need teachers who have some level of training. How are these things not obvious? Um, but anyway, I, was, I, I basically taught myself and I continued to read. I read constantly, but I would say over the years, it, it, it got more challenging as we needed more expertise because I didn't even have the time to teach myself anymore. Um, so we were really desperate to find the talent and we finally did. Um, it took quite some time, but we now have somebody who is our regional director of monitoring and evaluation who comes from a background in doing that. She specifically worked for an agency that um, implemented most of USAID's education projects in Guatemala in particular, again. um, We also work in Honduras and Panama, but um, Guatemala is where our biggest um, team and operations are. And so she's really been a gift and been transformative for us to be able to have that kind of data. So that makes perfect sense. You started with a ton of your own research, get up to speed yourself as the CEO. Right. And then when, right. you, as soon as you could acquire talent to start to fill Actually, that gap yeah. so that you could get back to strategy and vision and, and exactly. relationships and all of that. Now, how big is your team now? Um, we have, uh, I think it's around 30. We just added a few people. So I think it's 34 or 35. That's pretty incredible. 13 years. It's small in the U.S. We're very small in the U.S. We're four. 
think we're at 35 now total. So what's your footprint? These, these, um, these, um, 127 schools. Most of it, I would say, um, the majority, more than half are in Guatemala. Maybe even I would say 60, 60% are in Guatemala. Um, 30% are in Honduras and, we just started actually in Panama, basically right after the pandemic or right before the pandemic, but we put it on pause until after the pandemic. Um, so Panama still, we're in the north of Panama an indigenous territory there. And that's still relatively small footprint for us. Honduras has been growing. It was very difficult to grow um, in the beginning because one of our growth drivers was our student, U.S. high school student service trips. Um, and we could not do them in Honduras at the time because uh, Honduras was considered too dangerous at the time. Um, and then we realized after the pandemic where we were working in Honduras actually is very safe. And we started doing them in, in um, both Panama and Honduras as well. So that explains why it was slower growing in Honduras because the high school trips were these big drivers and we couldn't do it. We had to do them all in Guatemala. So it was like tremendous growth in Guatemala. We found a donor who helped us get started and grow in Honduras, but now Honduras is actually growing a lot as well. So the organization's name is not school South America. It is school the world. Right. Is there a vision? Oh. Where, where are you headed next? Is this, is this global domination? Is that what? Is that what's uh, coming up? You're looking at what hitting, a great question! I countries? can't believe you asked me that question. We're beginning um, a strategic planning process right now, and um, you know, one of the I guess best practices of strategic planning is to identify the questions that you want to frame your strategic planning, and one of them for me is: Are we school Latin America, school Central America, or are we school the world? And um, if we're school the world, what does that mean? Um, and when do we expand? Where do we expand? Why do we expand? And um, those are all really important questions for me, actually, that I can't say we have an answer to yet. I would like to see us expand. I would like to see us um, transplant and expand into another part of the world because I actually think it would bring a lot of learning um, to the organization. Uh, to be working in new contexts with new mm. um, environments, new cultures. I think it would, we are, I think we're a learning organization, but I think it, it would drive learning even more within the organization. I'm also particularly worried about the direction of um, Latin America right now, particularly um, Guatemala and Honduras and their political situations right now. They're very, um, which I don't know if you may have gathered from the news and the Biden administration's approach. Uh, they're very uncertain. Mm -hmm. You know, journalists, newspapers closing, journalists being arrested, anti-corruption prosecutors and judges fleeing the country. That, those are not good signs yeah. at all. Yeah. Now, your staff in these countries, are, did you find them in the States and they moved or did you find them in the, are they native to those countries? They are absolutely from these countries, and the majority of them are actually from the environments in which we're working, mm. um, so the localities in which we are working. Many of them themselves are the first in their families to go to school, or at least the first in their families to finish 
sixth grade high school and most of them have finished college now and have some have master's degrees some are working toward that um and they're the best possible example uh, of what education can mean to go into communities and talk to parents and community leaders and what an impact on them that you're having. Uh, um, right, let's talk leadership for a little bit. Just tell me what, what are some of the biggest leadership challenges at leading an organization with a semi-global footprint and mm-hmm. thinking about expansion at this point? You've grown from one to 34 people in 13 years. We, we've been over the numbers. It's obviously growing. There is, I'm sure, just a ton of potential running through your head every day. What are your biggest leadership challenges that you face on a daily basis and how are you overcoming them? Um, one, of course, is um, big cultural differences. Uh, you need to build trust with your teams and that's a challenge, um, particularly, again, in the context, I keep saying Guatemala, but there, there was um, you know, a 40-year war and we happen to have chosen to work in the, one of the areas that is the most impacted by that civil war. Um, so there's not a lot of trust for anybody outside of that area, to be honest. Um, and that has taken time to build that up. That was just, a, that was a huge challenge for us. And then I would say, um, again, being able to, to recruit the talent level that you need, the expertise that you need, like we talked about, the monitoring evaluation, that's a huge challenge. And then I would also, related to that, closely related to that, is um, raising money and having a budget big enough to reward the people that work for you that you want to reward because they all work so hard. And that that's really the biggest, is keeping everybody happy and taking good care of good people. Yeah. So talking about your good people, particularly your employees, one of the challenges in this new world we live in is the leadership and the management challenges that come along with remote work. And Mm -hmm. we're talking remote, even within, even within one city, you know, an Mm -hmm. organization that has, you know, their, their workers are remote. They work from home your workers are truly remote and, and in mm-hmm. a number of different remote places. How do you keep them engaged and connected to the larger vision and organization and keep them trained and, and nurtured and, and challenged in, in a remote environment? Well, this is really an interesting story, I think, because it's a story of where the pandemic helped us. Um, we, we hurt we were hurt a lot during the pandemic because of the student service trips all being canceled. That was 45% of our revenue, boom, gone overnight. But we're actually a much stronger and much better and much more cohesive organization today than we were before the pandemic. I immediately, (laughs) very beginning of the pandemic, did some quick research and saw crisis management, transparency, and communication. And I was I started doing, we were already familiar with Zoom because of the international environment that we worked in, but I started doing weekly countrywide calls with the team being very, very transparent about where we were, like how we were impacted financially, what I could commit to, what I couldn't commit to. We kept everybody employed, which most 
um, organizations were not doing. And that earned a lot of trust from the team. Um, but we also then decided to keep, even when the crisis crisis ended, we decided to keep that weekly meeting going and start introducing, uh, reinforcing things like our mission, our values, our theory of change, um, starting to get to know each other. Some meetings would just be like breakout rooms with fun questions, getting to know each other better, making it more personal. We basically just started communicating way more than we ever had before. And I, we all agreed actually that we were a much stronger organization after that. And I can say yesterday I was so like moved. We did a, a SWOT analysis as part of the beginning of our strategic planning. We did a SWOT analysis with some core team members and they talked a lot about how they relate to our theory of change and our mission and how they know why they're doing what they're doing. And that um, makes such a big difference for them. And I, you know, I felt really proud of that because that's as a result of these changes, you know, that we made in the course of the pandemic. We actually doubled our team during the pandemic. It wow. really was um, such an odd time to be losing so much revenue, doubling your team, adding so much depth, um, and feeling like so much stronger as an organization. So I think what I just heard is that one of the biggest drivers of this remote challenge that has worked in your favor is frequency that you've, yeah. you've increased the quantity of the connections and the frequency where a lot of organizations, I think, you know, backed off and, and kind of didn't know where to go, didn't know what to do. And so they just kind of ran silent for a while. And uh, that causes a lot of uncertainty and, you know, trust starts to deteriorate pretty quickly. So you ramped up the frequency of connection. Did I hear that right? Definitely. I definitely did that. And the quality. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the quality of it as well. It wasn't just about, are you doing this? Is this right. getting done? Are you doing this? It wasn't about, you know, project management. It was connection or values. Yeah. Like this is the, transparency, utter transparency on our financials. It was about engaging the team on the ground to do more of the design work um, because my priority had to be about the money. You know, I just, I basically told them, you guys have to do it. I can't do it. I have to focus on the budget, where we are, where we're going to find the money, you know, with such a crisis um, in that first year. So uh, that was another thing. Just it was an opportunity for a staff that um, it's very difficult to empower people in these environments too because they really they're so happy to have a job at all that they're very hesitant to speak up about things. It really takes a lot of effort to make them feel safe to speak up. That's the other thing I was so happy about yesterday hearing them say like one of the things they love working about us is that they feel like it's, they can offer their ideas, they can offer their opinions and they can even disagree that they're actually invited to disagree. Um, and I think that became more evident during the pandemic as well. Mm. I can only imagine the scope of work in your organization. I mean, a nonprofit <laughs> has a ton of things to say grace over already with, 
HR and fundraising and budgeting and programs and evaluation and events and board engagement and all of the different things. And you're doing it in a pretty big geographic footprint. How do you go about setting the priorities and, you know, getting all, getting it all done? I mean, I I know you would probably say we don't get it all done, but but that was, that's the phrase I'll use, you know, How, what's your strategy for getting it all done and making sure that the organization is prioritizing in order to do what you've accomplished? Well, prioritizing is the manual process. We do an actual, we do an operating plan every year um, where we identify what the priorities are and have the board involved and approve those priorities. And we roll that out. Of course, we, it starts by coming up and, and then going back down again. Um, and so that's broadly shared, of course, the whole plan throughout the organization. And we have structures um, where we'll do monthly monitoring and evaluation calls. We do, um, I now do quarterly goals calls. My, our chief operating officer does weekly senior team Calls, things like that to keep us um, on focus. It is, we do have um, a very large scope. We also do a lot. There are very few education actors, nonprofits that have the scope that we have, which ranges from early childhood through a, a broad primary school program with many components through lower secondary school with many components. Um, that's a lot. And, and these are really complex environments. So we're still pretty small, but it, but we're pretty complex organization. Well, and it's, I would say the last thing is just recognizing where you don't have the systems or you personally don't have the bandwidth or the ability. I recently made um, promoted someone who has a very different skill set from mine to be our chief operating officer and to take over the day-to-day running of the organization because we needed it. The organization has needed it because it's not my skill set. And we could no longer rely on my style, which is all up here, you know, in the brain, um, as opposed to systems. So this person is now in charge of creating systems to make sure that everything is getting done the way it's supposed to be getting done in the time that it's supposed to be getting done. I mean, that's tremendous. You're a leader after my own heart. So many things you've said are resonating that sound basic, but so many leaders have difficulty getting to them. You know, I, I love your word. We set priorities manually. And I, I would venture, I would venture a guess that even, even when you refine your systems, priority setting really is kind of a manual thing because the world changes every day and the rate of change oh, yeah. is increasing every day. Yeah. So the fact that you're, uh, you're taking a long-term strategic plan, you break it down into annual operation plans because you can't pick apart every to-do list in a three-year time frame. It's, it's too much to say, it's too no much way, to manage yeah. and it changes too fast. And then you're going quarterly with your own leadership goals. You're staffing up where you need to staff up. I mean, just all the, 
just wonderful moves. And, um, I'm sure if we, you know, spend another half hour, I could tell you, I could ask you, Hey, tell us all your mistakes. <laughs> I'm sure, oh, I'm sure you're plenty. like, Oh, you know, lots of lessons learned there's and plenty. things like that too. Oh my gosh. Well, there always is, but boy, you're doing it. Um, Kate, how do you, how do you, here's another question that comes up in our, in my coaching with senior leaders is, uh, how are you prioritizing and ensuring self-care? That's a good question. Um, I don't think I was for for quite some time, and that catches up with you. Mm. Um, you know, it's funny. I I think sometimes founders, in particular, get a little get a little too much criticism. You know, I heard someone once say, "The problem is that founders won't let go." Yeah. And I thought, and I thought that's not true at all. I would let go right now if I had the money and the resources to have to have this chief operating officer. I had someone with a lot of talent coming up through the organization and I was growing her and, and waiting until I could put her in that slot. Um, and those, that was a tough period for me because I knew I wasn't in my own competencies. Like I was, I was doing things that aren't me. Um, and I was so happy. I had a discussion with the board actually and decided to make this change and I took a sabbatical and I traveled. They gave me a sabbatical for three months. I moved all my belongings out of my apartment into storage, left, gave up my lease and went, took off and traveled. And I came back like a, you know, a different person. And I realized now like that's really important to me. Things like this are really important to me. I need to find a way to do it. And I need to take care of my own health and um, things like exercise. You know, I got to make the time for it. And taking a break sometimes. I really, I've become a huge proponent of sabbaticals now for people. Yeah, yeah. I've I've known a number of people that have taken advantage of sabbaticals. Um, Some organizations are more conducive to others to make that possible, but. I, I mean, I can't imagine m- many of them being much more difficult than yours would be. And you pulled it off. So, um, I, I agree. I think and it's, it, if you set the priority and do it, it's an, it's actually an investment in the organization. It is exactly an investment. And actually, how do you create real change sometimes? You know, like I actually found, we did a six month transition beforehand and I found that transition very difficult because it was confusing. Like, am I supposed to be in this call? Am I supposed to be in this meeting? Like, whose decision is this? You know, even though we had, we had clarified all these things beforehand, it was so hard. And then all of a sudden, you know, two months into the sabbatical, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so clear. I do not belong in those meetings, you know? And for her to be able to really step into her own leadership without me being in her shadow, how could we have done this without taking that Mm, kind of break? That's great. That's great. Yeah. You mentioned the board. Uh, tell me just a little bit about how your board operates. What's your board strategy in an organization like this? What's been that evolution? And um, how, how do they, uh, what, what's the board's role in your organization toward driving the, the future and the, the success? Um, we have a great board. I've been really, really fortunate to find the people that I have found. Of course, started out with my friends, you know, who's going to do it. Mm. It wasn't like a big sexy assignment or something. Um, So it started out with my friends and slowly changed. And 
it's just it's I, I guess so. I, it's very interesting. We tend to be have um, great people, really down to earth people, who have been very successful in life, um, but are very low key, and it's a culture of listening and very thoughtful inquiry um, and support. They're very very supportive. Uh, they question, absolutely ask questions, suggest where things are maybe not strong enough in their view, whether it's, you know, um, documenting things, particularly in the earlier years. I'm not much for documentation myself. And, um, but are, and, but never overreach. They don't overreach. I've, so I've been really lucky, but I, I will also say I've, I've had some difficult board members and I learned. I learned two things, really, I would say. Um, the first is it's an honor to serve on our board. I used to think I was lucky to get people, and then I realized, like, that is just the wrong mindset, mm. you know. Um, it's an honor to serve on this board as well. I want our listeners to rewind I, 30 seconds and listen to that one three times. That is yeah, so powerful. And I'm, and and I, that, I, to, I'm, I'm sorry to interject here, but before I forget it, one of the things that I hear a lot is from, from CEOs is they'll excuse their board members from inaction or, or disengagement by saying, well, they, you know, they're volunteers. And my response is yes, they volunteered <laughs> to do that. They volunteered right. to be a director on the governing body of the organization. And if they can't do it, then, you know, maybe they need to unvolunteer themselves, but there is this mindset, I think, among a lot of leaders that the board members are, well, you know, they, we don't expect a lot of them and, and, but your mindset there of it's an honor to serve on our board, not, not I'm lucky. And I know you're, I know you appreciate your board and yeah, I am. You're for, you, that's, right. you opened up with that. You said, I've got a great board, yeah. but the idea yeah. that really they should feel the sense of, of value to get to serve on this board. I love that mindset. So I'm, Sorry, I interrupted that train of thought, but that was really powerful. Yeah, and it's not based on, so even if somebody can come with a lot of resources, that doesn't make them the right board. That's exactly right. It can, in fact, make them the wrong board, a board member, not make them, but they can still be a wrong board member. Yeah. And so I became very careful um, about growing the board. Of course, you need to grow it. And I did have um, one great board member push me to grow it, which has been very beneficial, but I was careful and made sure that we had a good culture, um, on the board and good relationships on the board and that it was that kind of board, which was thoughtful, supportive, ask good questions, challenge where it needed to be challenged, but not trying to micromanage. I, I kind of see a lot of boards as, um, particularly in a local context, where this is easier to have happen to you, they're over-involved, they're over-managed yeah. um, at the organization. In an international context, that's much more difficult. And where the board members are not all in the same area, we have board members in different parts of the country, even different countries we've had board members. So that um, that changes it somewhat. Our board meets only four times a year, but we have regular contact with them throughout that period as individuals. Um, and in a few committees. Um, so that's I, personally board members. They, there's 
they know really the best ones know how that they can't know it all. They can't know everything, right? They they're there to lend their expertise, which isn't necessarily for sure, except for maybe a few of them. Not education in remote areas of Central America. You know, we had a minister of education on the board. Of course, that was her expertise, and everyone valued her tremendously. We had to. She had to go off for some personal reasons recently, but um, that's great to have that. But everybody recognizes that they could. We have several entrepreneurs on the board. I think they bring tremendous um, insight. They just do, and just great people and different people who respect one another with a great culture of respect. Um, everybody has something to offer in the dynamic. We just added three or four new ones. And that's really fun because of the energy that they bring. And everybody's loving that right now to see the new energy. Um, so it makes it's transformative to have a really good board. Mm. It really is. Yeah, no no doubt about it. And just out of curiosity, how big is your board? Um, the maximum is 15, which you've never had. Um, right now we're at 11 or 12. Um, I can't remember if it's 11 or 12. We lost several during the pandemic to being in their own crisis. None of them wanted to go off. They all were like having their own personal crisis during the pandemic. Um, and so we've been adding those and we're looking to grow it more this year, hopefully. What's the big dream right now? What, what's next? What's rattling around in your head? It's just like you're, you're driving toward next for this organization. Um, the big dream right now is a, a really great strategic plan. Um, with very clear goals. So not high level, a strategic plan that has like a business plan inside of it with how we're going to do these things, what the costs are going to be. Um, and then a donor, a major donor who will help us fund that. That is the big dream right now. Well, that's it. And when you've got those dreams, you can center your efforts around that. And I think part of it is magnetic and part of it is going out and getting it. I, I there's a, a great coach, I think I think Mark Thompson is the one who said this, that we have to strike the balance between making things happen and letting things happen. And, uh-huh. and, and it just really sounds like, like you've done that. I'm going to wrap this up with two questions I ask all of my guests, Kate. But before I do, let me give you an opportunity to answer any questions I didn't ask. Is there anything else about the organization or your, your leadership journey and um, that, that you would want to share that my questions haven't given you a chance to talk about yet? Um, I would say one thing about the organization, and that is just the incredible ripple effect of our strategy of working with communities. I, when I first started, this is not, I, I didn't set out to be a community organizer, but I woke up one day and said, oh my God, I'm a community organizer, uh, because I just saw the importance of community and parents immediately. And I also realized quickly that we were having a transformative impact on women empowerment of women, empowerment of mothers. Um, because when you show mothers how they can actually help their children learn, even though they have very low self-esteem and didn't go to school themselves, that has a transformative impact on them. Um, we have, I just had an educator from the Boston Public School System on a, a service trip with us. He was a chaperone and he kept talking about the layers of impact. So yeah, we're education, we're early childhood, primary school, lower secondary, but we're also empowerment of women. We're also community development. We're also adult literacy. I mean, it's just tremendous, the, the 
ripple effect. And I wish I could figure out how to measure those things. So if there's an expert out there listening, I'd love to hear from you about how to measure those things. That's the one thing about the organization, I think, um, that I would like to share. What was the other question? No, that was it. If it was, was there anything else you wanted to share? Um, you know, I, you're, I'm, I'm looking at your website right now, Kate, and, um, it, it, your mission, if I'm, if I'm at the right place is to solve extreme poverty through the power of education. Yeah. And so it's, that's interesting because I mean, there's, there's two metrics right there. We, we, so in Mm -hmm. our studies, um, we would call this a bifurcated mission, meaning it's kind of two-sided it's the poverty side and the education side. And you've got to measure both of those if you're going to be able to measure your success against your mission. So it's like, well, are we educating? What are those metrics? And are we solving extreme poverty? And what are those metrics? And what's our influence in that? And you're a part of a, you know, it strikes me that you're, you're not just a niche organization because of your footprint and you're part of an ecosystem you you opened up with that the 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 importance of the systems and you know it's not likely that school the world is going to solve extreme poverty by itself so what part in the ecosystem you play through your education is your value proposition and i think it's just a it's a powerful mission because i think both sides of these have some, some measurability to them. And I, I, I look for that when I look for mission statements, I look for, is it just help the world, you know, or is it, no, it's solving poverty and it's the power of education. Those are measurable things. And I, I appreciate that. Um, I do, I will say though, there's a lot of organizations that focus on a specific educational metric, but sometimes at the end of the day, like, what does that matter? If we're not, if people are not escaping, it's at least extreme poverty, which is a distinct thing, extreme poverty versus yeah, poverty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does it matter? Who cares? If you set a mission to build schools and you build 100 schools, who cares? If it's, at the end of the day, that's not happening. And so we are starting to track longitudinally kids coming out of um, ninth grade um, and seeing, and I'm actually have a presentation coming to me next, I'm hoping it's going to be on Thursday with the, with the tracking to hear exactly where we are on that. Powerful. Um, Kate, we'll, we'll wrap it up. I know we could go a long time on this, but I'm always interested in people like you who are doing the work you're doing. Who would you say is someone that comes to mind immediately as someone who has had the most or significant impact on your view of leadership and how you've become the leader you are today? That's so interesting because I never set out really to be a leader. Um, that was never, I was always, my old boss at UTE used to say, you're my thought leader. But that's a very different thing from a leader of people. It's a very different thing. Um, I was, I'm more of like a learner, so I'm always interested in learning new things, doing new things. And obviously GE, Jack Welch was at GE when I first started, right? He's one of the most famous leaders ever. Mm -hmm. And I really thoroughly did not like him as a a person at all um, or as a leader. But when I looked back over the span of the time at GE, which was him and then Jeffrey Immelt later, 
um, Jack Welch, granted, he did run a great company. Um, and there were, there, I had a lot of learning in that company while I was there that has helped me. But when I really think about it, I would say it's the value system that I was given by my parents. That's, that has what helped me, is what's helped me be a leader. Well, that's right. Treat you... people well, treat people with respect. Everybody has something they can contribute. Everybody has an obligation to help others. You know, those are, those are values and they come across in our, in our work to tell you the truth. Wow. Inspiring and, and great way to book into the show. Cause you opened up talking about your parents and their impact on this journey and your decision to even do what you're doing. Okay. Very quickly, before we get to the last question, let me make sure that everyone knows where to go to find out more about the organization. Go to school, the school, the Take a look at that website, uh, particularly in their impact. They've got some amazing, uh, more statistics than the one we gave you at the beginning of the show, and you can see the impact they're having. So if you want to know more, if you want to support them, if you want to get in touch with Kate and their folks, again, it's schooltheworld.org. And now you know where you can go to find more information. So last question, Kate, if you had 15 seconds and a microphone to reach every leader in the world right now with one message, what's your big message of leadership? What's the Kate Curran number one tenet of leadership to share with all of us? When you identify somebody who is an employee who is um, transformational to your organization, not just a great employee, not just a good employee, but the ones that are Actually, treat all your employees well. But when you identify one who has a transformational impact, treat them really, really well. And do everything you can to retain them, including telling them that they are transformative. Wow. That is one I have not heard in, really? what is this, 95 episodes now on this show. I mean, I've heard the, I know that to be true, but I've never, no one's brought that as a number one tenet of talking about that, who, who is that person that you really need to build up, let them know you recognize them, yeah. let, let them shine in that. I love it. Kate, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world. And uh, thanks for carving out time for us today. This has been really inspirational. I know our listeners have gotten a lot from it. So thanks for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great speaking with you. All right, folks. So you've got some inspiration to go. And where, what's your footprint? Where's your world? What are you measuring? What's important to you? What are you, what are you uniquely equipped or charged or called to do for the world and the people in the world? And uh, boy, wow, man, now I'm sitting here thinking of a ton more questions I could ask right now as a result of this episode. But I won't. I'll leave it to you. Lead on. <laughs>